I hope you'll take your Bibles and open there. Psalm 95. The passages won't be on the screen this morning, so grab your Bible or the text is on the back side of your notes and you can follow along there. Like we've already said several times, it is the week of Thanksgiving, which means that I think most of us are going to have a shorter week than normal. And we're also going to have a higher food intake than normal. Less work, more food. My kind of week. I hope that you do get time to take a break from your normal routines. I also hope that you'll allow yourself to do the thing that the name of the holiday suggests. It's Thanksgiving. It is set aside for giving thanks. And of course, as Christians, we know the one who is the giver of, of all things. We know that everything we have in this life, all of our hope for the life to come, it's all, it's all a gift from him. Nothing is given to us that does not come from his hand. As Christians, we should be more than anyone else drawn to lives of thanksgiving. I mentioned earlier how it is a common refrain that we should be thankful every day, which is 100% true, but I do think it's appropriate for us as Christians to be the ones who celebrate Thanksgiving the best, to really push in, to slow down, and to think about the one who's given us everything. And I think this holiday is a gift because we do need this reminder, don't we? A reminder for gratitude the reality is, this is the way our hearts work. When it comes to seeing the goodness of God and remembering all he's done, we can be a forgetful people. When it comes to thanking him and praising him for all he's given, we can be, I can be, complacent. It's part of who we are as sinners. It's something we have to fight against because sometimes... Maybe most of the time, we can be inclined to see all the things that are wrong instead of the things that are right. We can focus on how we think things should be different. And for some of us, we have seasons when even when we think of God, all we can think about is what we wish he would have done and what we think he should do instead of recognizing all he actually has done and all he's promised that he will do. What I'm trying to say is by nature, we're not grateful people. By nature, we don't keep good perspective. By nature, we forget his kindness and we complain about things that seem unfair. And I know it's true because I've seen it in my own heart. But a higher authority than that, the, the story of the scriptures shows us over and over that we are a forgetful people. Those who have come before us have given us the example that we read about together in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Storyline of the Bible tells us that there are people who know God and who have seen him do incredible things, and yet they still become bitter and angry towards God. This is the story of the nation of Israel, isn't it? Especially of that generation that God brought out of Egypt. They saw God work in unbelievable and tangible ways. 
They saw the flies and the river turn to blood. They saw the sky blackened out. They saw all of the plagues that God brought against those who enslaved them. They walked out of Egypt and knew it was by the hand of God. They crossed the Red Sea on dry ground and watched as the sea swallowed up their enemies. They knew that God was real because they saw Moses go up on the mountain. They heard the thunder. And they received the promises and the commands of God that he spoke to Moses and wrote on tablets. The point is they knew God. And they had seen the work of God. And we would think that a people who had seen all they had seen and heard all they had heard would be the most thankful. And that they, above all, would trust God no matter what came. But if you know the story, you know that wasn't the case. They became a grumbling and a complaining people. A people who questioned God at every turn. And even after they had seen and heard all that they did, they were quick to forget and quick to allow their hearts to grow cold. And church, I fear we have the same tendency. So my hope this morning is that we will be reminded of who God is, of how much we have to be thankful for, and that our response would be gratitude and worship and obedience. I said our text is Psalm 95, and I do want to be honest. I don't want to be consu- you know, accused of, of stealing or any kind of plagiarism. So I'll be honest and say that I did not put the sermon together by myself. Wednesday night, quite a few of us gathered, and we spent time unpacking the psalm, and um, it was fun. I enjoyed it. And just a preview for the rest of the year, excluding this week because it's Thanksgiving, we will spend the Wednesday before Sunday, and you're going to write my sermons for me because December's busy, okay? So each Wednesday, we'll be looking at the text and talking about it together before we consider it together on Sunday. So this week, I got a lot of good help, so I want to give credit where credit's due. But even though we, I feel like, mine some of the depths of this passage Wednesday, I think there's still a lot here for us. As we go to the text and we read it, I do want you to notice two things. This psalm is calling us, inviting us to, I think, two different things. First, it's a call or an invitation to worship. And second, it's a call or an invitation to faithfulness. The psalmist wants us to see God rightly and to respond to him rightly. I liked my title, Two Invitations to Thanksgiving. Come to Thanksgiving, it's a time of worship. Come to Thanksgiving, it is a time to be reminded of the need for faithfulness. So Psalm 95, I hope you'll follow along as as I read. Hear the word of God. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God. He is a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his because he made it. His hands formed the dry land. 
Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. For he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. Therefore, God says, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word and use it to make us his kind of people. Now, if you're with us Wednesday or maybe you were just paying really good attention during the reading, I hope you noticed the sudden shift in my Bible, in this Bible, there's actually, you turn the page and if you're reading carefully, you think, I, I, must, not, I must have skipped a page. Because in the middle of verse 7, there's a weird turn. In the first six and a half verses, we have this great call to worship, which we have used on many occasions as our call to worship at the beginning of a service. This call to sing and to shout and to praise. But then there's this shift in verse 7. A shift from worship to warning. It's an abrupt change and so abrupt that if you go and read critical scholars, those who study the Bible for a living, some have suggested that maybe these were written at different times for different purposes and somewhere along the way they got put on the same piece of paper. And so we actually have two Psalms under one heading. I get it, but I don't believe it. There's lots of reasons why I don't buy into that theory, but just for this morning, the more and more time I've spent thinking about the psalm, the more and more I'm convinced that there's an important truth being conveyed because these are together and that they're here by the inspiration of God for us. And I think we need both of these sections if we're going to be rightly prepared for Thanksgiving. First, we have a good reminder of who God is and what he's done. And we have this call to worship, which is very appropriate for this week. It's also good for us to be warned about the danger of being ungrateful. The danger of growing cold. So we put the sections together, we see that true worship is not only singing, shouting, and joyful praise. Although those are all aspects of worship. But we see that true worship is also seeing and responding to who God is and living that out faithfully. So we have these two invitations, the invitation to worship and the invitation to faithfulness, which I do believe are both helpful for us on a week like this week. We'll talk more about how those sections come together in a minute, but let's start at the beginning. Verse 1, we get this first word of invitation. He says, Oh, come. And then four let us phrases. I remember I was young. We sang the song we ended with, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. I sang that in a children's choir. This isn't in my notes. 
um, saying that in a children's choir. I remember our choir director said, there will be no lettuce patches in this song. She wanted us to say, let us, not lettuce, right? We're not singing about vegetables. Anyways, we have these four let us phrases. Let us sing. Let us make a joyful noise. Let us come into his presence. Let us make a joyful noise. And it's one of those passages that we should not be allowed to read somberly or without a smile. It's an invitation to outward praise. We're being invited to singing, and not only singing, but joyful noise or joyful shouting. Let's not miss the point. We are being called to outward expressions of praise. And I I don't want to pass by this too quickly because I think we could be inclined, at least in the back of our minds, to perceive our singing of songs as just a tradition that we do. And to forget that God has actually called his people to be a people who sing. Because singing is one of the ways, have you ever thought God made singing? He made our voices and then he made us able to sing and some of us able, more able than others, right? I count myself among the less able. But he gave us this ability to sing and I think he created for this expression, And not only did he create it, but he's called us to use it. Every one of us, regardless if you feel skilled or not, to sing. To sing joyfully. To make noise. Some of us aren't naturally inclined to loud, joyful, expressive singing. Some of you are more reserved. And there's a place for our personality to adapt to the way we sing, I think. But we should recognize this is an invitation to us all. And not just singing for the sake of singing or joy for the sake of joy, but singing joyfully because of the one who's receiving our praise. We get the four let us phrases and every one of them has an object. Let's sing to the Lord. Let's sing to the rock of our salvation. We're coming into his presence with thanksgiving. We're singing songs of praise to him. And again, not just singing for the sake of song or joy for the sake of joy. He is the one we're singing to and for. And when we see him rightly, we should want to sing. It's not about drumming up emotions. It's not about a happy face. Some of the songs we sing probably should be lament. But the psalm calls us to sing. And to sing because of who God is, which is what we get in verse 3. We see that transition word, let us, let us, let us, let us, for. Why sing, why shout? For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. There's something I became convinced of, and I remember whose couch I was sitting on when it first occurred to me. And it's something that every year I've become more and more convinced of. I am convinced that the heart of most all of our struggles, doubts, fears, temptations, worries, insecurities, at the heart of all of it is this. 
an insufficient understanding of the greatness of God. What I mean is, and I remember sitting there and realizing it for the first time, I see him as too small. I haven't fully recognized how big and powerful and great he is, and as a result, I've not trusted him well. I've not believed that all his commands were good and for my good. I've had fear that my life was out of control. I was scared of the future. And it all hinged on this. I had underestimated who God is. Far too often our thoughts of God fall way short. The psalmist wants us to see him rightly. The Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. And let me just pause here and suggest to you that if you're feeling overwhelmed this morning, if you're scared, or if you think you can get away with your sin, all these things have their roots in an under... We've underestimated is what I'm trying to say. The greatness of God. What the psalmist is driving at here is that God is supreme. He's over all. There's nothing and no one greater than he is. And he's writing during a time when it was very common for the nations around Israel to worship the moon. And you know what? Some nights when I see, did you see the full moon this week? I get the temptation. It's magnificent. There were those who worshipped the stars, others who worshipped the rivers and the forces of nature. They worshipped kings and leaders and saw them as deities. But what the psalmist says is that the true God, Yahweh, is greater, greater than anything, greater than anyone. And the reason we know it is because he made everything. Verse 4. How do we start to wrap our minds around his greatness? Well, here's something to start with. In his hand are the depths of the earth. He's pushing us down. Think about the lowest parts, the depths of the sea that we can't get to. They're his. And then we go to the other extreme, to the heights of the mountains, places we can't go without oxygen. They're all held in his hand. Not only does he see them and hold them, he made them. There's not a place on earth he doesn't know, see, and rule over. That's the vertical, the depths and the heights, and then we get a horizontal, the sea and the land. The sea is his because he made it. His hands form the dry land. He made it all. He's over it all. He holds it all, which begs the question, how great is our God? Depths, heights, sea, land, it's all his, and he holds it in his hand. He's pushing us to a big view of God, and a big view of God is supposed to lead us to sing and to shout and to give praise and thanks. But why? Why should the greatness of God lead us to these kinds of expression? I think part of the answer is back in verse 1. 
We're told that God is the rock of our salvation, which is to say he's our security, our foundation, our refuge. It's a reminder to us. We've seen his greatness, and now we're told he's our rock. Nothing can shake him. Nothing can change him. Nothing's outside of his control. Nothing is beyond his reach. He's the one we trust with our lives and with our eternal lives. Are you putting these together? Who God is, which should blow our minds. And then he says, I'm your rock. Most of us are used to being overwhelmed. We're used to not being able to see the end from the beginning. We are aware of our weakness and limitations. But the psalmist wants us to see that God is never overwhelmed. He always sees the end from the beginning. He has no weakness and he has no limitations. And there is reason to praise because we are in his care. One of my favorite passages of scripture, when I'm overwhelmed, and if you've come to me overwhelmed, I've probably shared it with you or encouraged you to read it. I'm not that creative. You've all gotten the same one. Psalm 139. I'll read just part of it. Where should I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning, he's talking about the sunrise, I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me, the light around me will be like night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. It's the greatness of God applied to us. You can't outrun him. You can't leave his sight. Even in the dark, he sees so I'll say it again. One of the main reasons we struggle and the thing that holds us back is our view of God is too small. We don't truly believe that he can handle the weight of our life. The psalmist is telling us that he is greater than all. So we can sing. We can shout. We should give thanks. You can sit at your Thanksgiving table this week no matter what the news is from outside or what the news is from within your family or what the cry of your heart is, you can sit at that table and know that God sees and knows and is over it all. You can trust him. The first part of the psalm pushes us to see the bigness and the greatness of God, but then there's a transition and another call to worship for a different reason. Verse 6, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. A different call to worship and a call to a different expression of worship. Do you notice that? First, we're shouting, singing, giving thanks and praise, joyful noise. This time, we're called to put our face on the ground, to bow, to kneel. It's a picture of humility and reverence, a position that demonstrates 
the greatness of God as we get as low as we can. It's different, not better, but it's a different expression. But in both cases, we're finding ways to express that God is worthy of all the glory. He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our gratitude, not only because he's over all things, but because he is our God. Verse 7, for he is our God. The great God, the great king, the creator who holds it all, the same God has established a relationship with a people. And in this context, this is the nation of Israel. They are his covenant people. But we know because of Christ, anyone who is in Christ, anyone who has repented of their sins, placed their faith in him, has been reconciled to God through Christ. And you can say, if you're in Christ, he is my God. Man. Should blow us away. That the God of all things described in verses 1, 2, and 3, creator, sustainer, sovereign, would call us his own. Our God, his people. Maker of the mountains and seas. Has set his love on us. I sat there. Scratching my head. I need an illustration. What's the illustration for this? Of God to us. I got up and I walked around. I'm thinking about it. I come back and it's right in front of me. He's like a shepherd. We're like his sheep. It's a picture that helps us see the way God cares for his people. And of course, the first passage that comes to mind for most of us is the one we sang a little earlier, the 23rd Psalm, where the psalmist David describes how the shepherd cares for his sheep. He provides for us. David says, the Lord is my shepherd. We see that personal connection. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads us. He, he takes his flock where they're supposed to go you may feel like you're wandering, but know that the shepherd doesn't lose any of his sheep. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He's our provider, our guide, our protector. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even when I face the hardest and the scariest time of life, whether for myself or with someone I love, when we walk through that time, we don't have to fear evil because he's with us. We're told his rod and his staff, they comfort us. The rod is the stick the shepherd holds to beat off the enemies. The staff, it's the one with the big hook that he would use to grab us and to pull us close. His rod and his staff, that's comfort. God is the shepherd our shepherd. We are the people of his pasture, his sheep. And of course, we know something that the psalmist didn't know. We know this, that the God of verses 1, 2, and 3, great king, great God, overall sustainer, that God would take on flesh and the shepherd would die 
for the sheep. Your first homework assignment, John chapter 10. I'll give you the highlights. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for the sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. He says this church, they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's why we can say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. This is the kind of relationship we've been brought into. That we know him and he knows us. He gave his life so we can be saved. And he has promised he will never leave us, never forsake us, and never let us go. If you are in Christ, you have much to be thankful for. Whether your bank account says so or not. So we go into the week of Thanksgiving. I want you to have these reminders of God in your heart and mind. His greatness and his grace. And my hope would be that during this week in particular, you would find yourself overwhelmed with gratitude for who God is and what he's done. And I know, friends, I, I know you. And you know me, and I know that some of you are walking into this week with burdens. This year has been hard and has brought unexpected things. This is not the way you would have written the story of this year, some of you. And yet we can be thankful because we know the powerful, sovereign one, and we know that he is our God, our shepherd, and he is with us. And my hope is that this portion of the psalm would strengthen your belief in who he really is and that he's worthy. And if you feel like this is a conclusion... Take a deep breath, we're not done. Because there's an odd twist coming. A twist I didn't actually think about whenever I chose Psalm 95. Full disclosure. But at the same time, it may be the most important part of the psalm for us this morning. It goes back to what I said at the start that we are prone to forgetfulness, we are prone to complacency. And even knowing all that we've said about God, sometimes we still doubt. We still find ourselves questioning and not trusting that God knows best. And so this final part of the psalm becomes very important. On your outline, I've tried to say it positively first. It's an invitation to faithfulness. To say it plainly, it's a warning. That even with all we know about God, even after all we've seen him do, we may still have hearts that become hardened towards him. So here's the warning, verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It's a weird transition at first, but let me make this connection. He's just said that he is our God, and now he tells us what our God says. God's speaking. He has something to say, and we should listen. 
And he starts with today, which is a clear indication that this is a timeless warning. Because whatever day you read today, guess what? It's today. God is speaking now. And this is what he says. And if I was the translator, maybe you want to just put it in your Bible. I think there should be a colon after if you hear his voice, colon, and then God starts speaking. The first thing he says is this. Do not harden your hearts. Again, he knows our nature. He knows our weakness. He knows we are prone to hardness of heart. And he gives us an example of how this has happened before. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Here's an example. It happened at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, even though they had seen my work. It's a story from homework assignment number two. John 10, Exodus 17. This is after the people have been rescued from Egypt. It's after the crossing of the Red Sea. It's after the giving of the Ten Commandments. The people are in the wilderness, and this is the scene. God is leading them every day by a cloud. They can see, and they follow it. At night, there's a pillar of fire. They can see it. Every day when they wake up, there is food on the ground. They pick it up, and they have enough for the day. God has made himself known. And yet, we see they come to a point of doubt and anger and confusion. Exodus 17, we're told they come to a place called Rephidim. And the the text is clear. It says, God leads them there. Okay? Did they get there by accident? No. God has led them there. He brought them on purpose. He doesn't make mistakes. Same is true for your life, by the way. God brought them there, but when they get there, they notice a deficiency. I'll read just a couple of verses, starting in 17.2. It says, Therefore the people, they quarreled with Moses, their leader, and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why are you quarreling with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted because there was no water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Remember, they wanted to leave, but now it's Moses. Why did you bring us out to kill us, to kill our children, to kill our livestock with thirst? Why have you brought us here? There is no water. Moses says, why are you quarreling with me? And then he says this, why do you test the Lord? It's bigger than me. Sometimes I want to say that to you when I bring hard texts. Don't get mad at me. Why are you testing the Lord? The people keep grumbling. God go, Moses goes to God. God gives him this instruction. Go to Horeb. There's a rock. Take the same staff that you touched the Nile River with. Take that staff and hit the rock. Enough water will come out for everyone. And that's exactly what happens. Moses touches the rock with the staff. It produces water, and there's more than enough. And the point of the story is that the people, even after all they'd seen, did not trust God. 
They didn't think that God would provide for them. The Red Sea, forgotten. The fact that God was there by cloud and fire didn't matter. The reality that every morning there was food on the ground was not enough to convince them that God could be trusted. They quarrel with Moses. They test God. And then we read this in verse 7. Moses called the name of the place Massa and Meribah. Massa means quarreling. Meribah means testing. He names the place to remind them of their sour attitudes. He named the place Massa and Meribah because it was of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, and listen to this question, is the Lord among us or not? What a question. They're there, they're thirsty, they're distrusting, and they ask the question, is he with us or not? And maybe you've been there. Is the Lord with me or not? Because it sure does not feel like he's with me. Here I am in the wilderness dying of thirst. Here I am in a relationship that doesn't work, in a job that seems pointless, in a body that's failing me, with kids that don't care anything about God. Here I am with so much to do, not enough time, not enough money, not enough energy. I'm trying to obey, but it's just not working. Is the Lord with me or not? I've had friends, you may have had friends or maybe yourself have asked this question. And I've known people who after asking the question have walked away. Maybe you're at the cusp. Maybe everything in verses one to six seems like noise because God doesn't seem great or close or good. That's why we have the warning. Because he knows the temptation. And he pleads. He commands. Don't harden your hearts. Look at the example of Israel. You're like them. God has shown himself faithful. The question is, will you trust him? What we see is that Israel remained hard-hearted. And we see God's response in verses 10 and 11. He says, for 40 years I loathed that generation they were a people who went astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, in this context, rest did not necessarily mean eternal life. He's talking about the promised land. And we see the fulfillment that no one in that generation ever entered the promised land. It wasn't until the next generation that anyone could go in. God punished them for their hardness of heart. And yet, this is a passage that's a warning to us about eternity. And we know it because this passage has a full inspired commentary. Homework assignment number three. It's a busy week. I know it's a holiday week. You actually have more time. John 10 Exodus 17, Hebrews 3 and 4. I'll read part of it. It says, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. 
And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting with hope. Here's the call. Hold fast. Okay? Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and then the writer of Hebrew quotes Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as on the testing in the wilderness. He goes on. He quotes the rest of the psalm. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And then he says this. This is his commentary. Here's his application. We've read Psalm 95. Let me tell you how it applies to you. He says this. Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. So that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today. If you hear his voice do not harden your hearts. As in the rebellion. Which brings me to a point I'll flesh out in a minute. That the act of thanksgiving could save your soul. To recognize God for who he is. And to be convinced again that you can trust him. Could prevent you from believing that you can walk away. Let me try to bring it all together. There are those who have seen the work of God and they've been close enough to experience him. But sin is deceitful and difficulty can produce doubt. And so we have the warning. Don't let yourself become blind to the wrath of God, or excuse me, to the work of God. Don't allow yourself to become hard-hearted because to walk away from God is to lose everything. And you know when the time to take action is? Today. Today, if you hear his voice. It's also today that we're called to care for one another. Exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. That none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Today is the day. There's more here. You'll have to unpack it in your homework. The psalm gives us two invitations. An invitation to worship and an invitation to faithfulness. It's about worship and warning. And the two sections do go together. Because you know how we guard ourselves from being like the people of Israel who doubted and tested God? Do you know how we protect our hearts from becoming hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? This is how we do it. We give ourselves to seeing God for who he really is. And we live lives of gratitude and worship. I'll say it again. You protect your heart from becoming hardened and deceived by sin by seeing God for who he really is and having a life of gratitude and worship. Thanksgiving could save your soul. Not the day, but the lifestyle, the heart attitude of seeing what God's done, rehearsing it, giving thanks to him. This is our protection. We must remember the greatness of God, remember his grace, and recognize that he is always faithful even when it doesn't feel like it, even when we're in the wilderness and thirsty. We must take time to remember. It's 
It's one of the things I pray we accomplish every Sunday morning that we're encouraged to remember. But our hearts aren't always focused and maybe this week you need to take additional time to slow down and to look up. To remember that we have a great God who is a great king who holds all things, made all things, and is our God. May we not be like the people of Israel. We read it together, and I'll finish by reading it again. We're told that God was not pleased with them. And these places, they, they took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. We must not put Christ to the test like they did, nor grumble as some of them did. These things happened to them as an example. They were written down for your instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let any of us who think we stand take heed lest we fall. We are blessed. We are sheep in the care of the great shepherd. Let's be a people who strive to see him rightly who guard our hearts through our thanksgiving. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let's make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let's come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let's make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise.